0: I promised on Ash Wednesday that I was going to do kind of a series during this Lenten season, uh, really zeroing in on the three disciplines and practices that uh, we sort of focus on during the Lenten season. They're meant to be, of course, a broader part of our spirituality, but the three things that we really focus on in terms of uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. I feel like they get kind of cliché around this time of year, and you know we're supposed to do them, and we hear that reading from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount about them. But I think I wanted to develop them a little bit deeper this year, so throughout Lent when I'm preaching, I'm going to devote a deeper time to that. That means I'm not even going to touch the readings, which I feel bad about, and guilty, because in the seminary, we were told, don't do this. You have to preach on the readings. And so I hope on this live stream, my homiletic professor is not watching. But I did put a little reflection on the readings in the bulletin, if you're interested. I want to start uh, where Jesus starts in that passage we hear on Ash Wednesday. He starts with almsgiving. And remember what he says. He says, when you give alms, do not blow a trumpet before you to tell everybody that you're such a great person. Don't blow a trumpet to win the praise of others. When you give alms, right, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your Father who sees in secret can repay you. So I want to start with giving. First, to define the term, since we don't usually throw around uh, the term almsgiving at dinner parties, right, it's not a common term, the word is an Old English term that ultimately goes back um, to the Greek word for mercy. In fact, we didn't, Luke and I didn't plan this, but he sang the Kyrie Eleison, uh, and that's actually, Eleison is the, the original Greek word mercy. That the word "alm" actually has its etymological origin in. So the word simply means to have mercy or to have pity. And so almsgiving is having mercy towards someone who is disadvantaged in a particular area, right? It's it's to differentiate from. Um, I like to differentiate it from compassion and sympathy. Compassion in Latin literally means to suffer with someone. Sympathy is the Greek version of the saying, to suffer with, right? That means it almost presumes that I have some uh, firsthand knowledge of what you're going through. I like to use the example of my mom as a stage four breast cancer survivor. When she talks to someone with breast cancer, she can have compassion in a way that I never can. I've never suffered with it. I can have mercy. Because mercy actually presumes that I don't possess the deficiency that you have. Mercy is, I want to get you food, but I already have food. Mercy is, I want to help get you a job, but I already have a job. Mercy is, I want to help you get a house, but I already have a house. Mercy means that I'm in a privileged position, actually, with regards to whatever it is we're talking about. Not in terms of moral worth, of course, but in terms of whatever it is that's lacking, and I'm in a position to be able to lift you up out of that. So mercy is actually different than other aspects of charity. In relation to us, every act of God's love is merciful because God is above us in all things. But never, not every act of love we have is mercy. So mercy is lifting someone up out of a disadvantaged situation to try and get them on equal ground, on equal footing. Any conceptual um, sort of understanding of almsgiving has to grapple with our selfishness. It has to grapple with our selfishness. So if you take the biblical narrative as your starting point, we have to grapple with the fact that We seem to be fallen, and that we've inherited uh, some inclination to, like, put me first, and to consider my needs and desires always first, right? This sinful inclination to be selfish, right? That we need kind of divine intervention to help overcome. It's also true if you consider it from an evolutionary perspective. I've become very interested recently in evolutionary psychology, and one of the things that is a great sort of mystery in evolutionary psychology is where altruism comes from. Where generosity to strangers, how that could have possibly evolved, right, in the evolution of species, because from an evolutionary standpoint, right, our genes are really selfish, right? They only want to reproduce and replicate That which, through the mechanism of of survival fittest, right, is most likely to survive. And so, therefore, Richard Dawkins calls our genes selfish genes, right? They only want to reproduce and replicate that which has the most likely ability to survive. And so, even in that framework, there's a ton of like philosophizing about what eventually made human beings. Consider giving generously to a stranger. There's no benefit. Right? We might say there might be a benefit you to uh, caring for your family. Right, That might make sense in an evolutionary framework, your own kin. Right, But to give to a random stranger right, with, with no thought of reciprocity, right, what could possibly explain the evolution of that? So whether we start from sort of the biblical narrative, the evolutionary uh, perspective, or a mixture of both, right? We have to grapple with the fact that we seem to be somewhat selfish, a little hardwired for selfishness. And therefore, almsgiving, acting in mercy, uh, sometimes seems contrary to our nature. I want to mention two biblical contributions to the notion of almsgiving that I think are significant. The first is that the Bible really Changes the concept of almsgiving from just an ethical obligation to a religious obligation. In many of the ancient religions, the only thing that really determined our favor or disfavor with God was how well we offered sacrifices, right, at the altars, right, ritual sacrifices, how well we performed the ceremonies and the rites of the particular religion. But biblical religion came along and said, no, 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 just like we make an offering of sacrifice at the altar, we make an offering to God through the hands of the poor. That when we reach out and help lift up the disadvantaged, we are in fact serving God. Not just serving humanity, but serving God. And this, of course, was grounded in what Genesis teaches about who we are, which is if human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, then to serve another human being is to serve the image and likeness of God. To serve another human being is to serve God. what's that great layman's line? To love another person is to see the face of God. I was going to sing that, but not feeling, not feeling the mood. Right, so it takes on a religious dimension. In fact, this shocked the Romans in the in the Roman Empire in the early days of Christianity. They couldn't understand how Christians were so generous, not just to their own, but to strangers. In fact, there's a great story of the Emperor Julian in the 4th century, who was so embarrassed by how generous the Christians were and how bad the pagan Romans were at generosity to the poor. He said, these Christians are showing us up. Like, they're not only taking care of their own poor, but they're taking care of all of our poor. So he set up many of the pagan temples as food distribution centers and he tried to get the government to to try and supply what the Christians were doing. Precisely because the Christians didn't just see this as something the state's supposed to do. They didn't see this as just a mere ethical obligation for the good and betterment of humanity. They saw it as precisely a religious obligation, that in serving others and serving the needs of the poor, I'm serving God. Jesus, of course, makes this clearest in Matthew 25, right, when he says, if you give food to the hungry, you're feeding me. You shelter the homeless, you're housing me. You visit people in prison, you're visiting me. And so the Bible has this really incredible perspective that almsgiving is not just about philanthropy. It's actually an offering to God on par with what we do at the altar. The second uh, unique contribution I might say is that the Bible starts to present love and good works and almsgiving as a way of covering up for our sins. In the later books of the Old Testament and, and certainly in the New, sin starts to be conceived of as a kind of debt, right? a debt that we accrue upon ourselves and upon our communities. In fact, Jesus reflects this in the Lord's Prayer. We don't translate it literally from the Greek, but the literal translation is, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who hold debts against us. Forgive us our debts, God, as we forgive the debts of those who hold them against us. And so, to use the kind of economic term of debt, needed a corollary. And so all started to be described as, as you can imagine, as a form of kind of spiritual interest, spiritual credit, that could be used to cover over the multitude of our sins. This kind of spiritual currency, right? Jesus uses some imagery like this in some of his parables. He talks about storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven that are good words our almsgiving, our love for the poor, can in fact be one way that the debt of our sins is forgiven. This was also tied up in the early view of Jesus kind of as the holder of the bond, right? And Jesus Jesus canceled the debt through his death and resurrection, and he holds the bond. So he can can give away interest as he sees fit, but he can also exact payment for our debts when he sees fit. Dead. There is, of course, danger in this kind of transactional language we have to be careful of in the spiritual life, right? It can lead to abuses like buying our way into heaven. Uh, it can lead to abuses that were at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. It can lead to a ton of fear and anxiety, like if I'm being, if I'm being weighed on the scales of justice with sins on, my, on the one hand and almsgiving and good works on the other, like how am I doing? Can lead to a ton of fear and anxiety. So we have to really be careful of that transactional language. But I think it's safe to say that the Bible is comfortable with the notion that God notices our almsgiving. God pays attention to how much we are investing in lifting up the disadvantage of others. And that it is a significant part of the equation in when God judges us. In fact, in Matthew 25, it is the key element in how Christ judges us. Maybe First Peter put it better. Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. So that we can be confident if we live a generous life of almsgiving, right, that will be used in our favor against uh, the debt of our sins. So, how do we give alms? I realize this is a long time. I apologize. <laughs> Real quick, um, Obviously, we can support, financially, uh, places that are lifting up poor and individuals, right? This is the most um, you know, straightforward meaning of almsgiving, you might say, uh, that we know of, right? And that happens in a, a variety of different ways, right? And, and we're in a variety of different uh, means in which uh, to do that. Almsgiving, traditionally, was sort of distinguished from the tide. you may have heard of the tide. Tithe in the Old Testament was 10% off the top of your income. Well, originally it was like 10% of your crops, right? Go to God directly, to the temple, you give 10% off the top, right? Um, and that idea was actually, the tithe was more about like supporting the temple, supporting the work of the priests, offering sacrifices, supporting divine worship, right? And so that came into the Christian tradition, the tithe more as like supporting the church, okay? Supporting the church. Almsgiving had more of the sense of supporting the poor. And sometimes those are intertwined. Uh, like here at Corpus, I love that uh, a tradition that would, I inherited, which is uh, you see the weekly tie that's put in the bulletin and then mentioned in the petitions. Five percent of every week's collection go to that to that shared 10% if it's a, a mandated national uh appeal. So we just take five or ten percent right off. Uh, the top that goes uh, to that charity. So when you're giving to Corpus, you're also giving uh, to those charities. So sometimes they're intertwined. But giving is kind of different, it's like not giving just to the church, it's giving to charities and individuals who were helping uh, to lift up. There's all sorts of ways to do that. If you don't have great financial resources, do something really small. Like if you're a student, start with $2 a week, a dollar a week, the 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 cost of a frappuccino from Starbucks <laughs> do something right. Um, that's one of the reasons we switched to giving where you can give through the platform through Venmo. It's like I can give a dollar fifty a week, right? Because um, most young people don't carry cash. I don't know if us older people know about this, but we don't. They don't know cash as much as I know cash, right? So, but just to start with what you can in giving. Uh, to the church. Second, be in contact with those who are less fortunate. Find ways to get out of our comfort zones and to be in actual uh, interactions with people who are less fortunate. Uh, Last year, the Sojourner Committee, who works on service projects for the students, came to me and said, Father, we feel like we're doing too much stuff that's making stuff for the poor, but we're not spending any time actually talking to the poor. Like, being with them, hearing their story. And so they really shifted, we kind of discerned, and they really shifted the move of the Sojourner Committee to, like, just be more engaged one-on-one um, with, with the homeless. Uh, so that, you know, you talk to them, right? Treat them as individuals and as people. Uh, you still do the other stuff. Uh, but finding ways uh, to hear people's story, because then you hear what they really need, actually, to be lifted out of their situation. So to find ways that we can do that. Uh, finally, of course, there's all sorts of ways every day that we can perform works of mercy, right? Where we lower our ego and our self desires and we put somebody first. Every time I listen to somebody about a problem that they have and listen attentively, that's a problem I don't have. That's a that's an act of mercy. Right? That's an act of mercy, and there's all sorts of ways in our lives that we can, without it being just focused on um, those we can perceive uh, with disparities and disadvantages, but the people in front of us that need uh, those acts of mercy as well. Finally, all these things Jesus tells us to do without letting other people see them. And so we should do our best, as best as we possibly can, to do as many charitable things as we can without any fanfare, okay? If you're a student, uh, to do something you don't put on your resume, do something. Do something that you never put on your resume. Do something that's outside the bounds of requirements for an org that you have to be in, right? Don't take pictures all the time of charity things that we do, because that, that allows us sometimes to get a little caught up in the notoriety that it might bring us for doing something good. We've got to find little ways to opt out of the idea that I want to be recognized and seen for the good work uh, that I might be doing. We have to not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing and strive for finding ways to do that. Friends, almsgiving has a really rich biblical history grounded in who we are, made in the image and likeness of God, and based on the radical commands uh, that Jesus calls us to as disciples of his. Let's strive to make almsgiving a more prominent part of our life journey this year and beyond.